Well, hey everyone, it's Kevin McMillan back again with our second session of the overview of the New Testament here at Mile 2 Church. Thanks very much. Hope you were able to look at the first section. Uh, session. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and have a look at that. We're sort of picking up where that one left off. And again, wanted to encourage you to download the notes, a bit of a study help there. Uh, just brings out the main points that we're going to be talking about, helps you follow along, or again, it might help you uh, in the future, just as you can keep that for your information for your records, for greater understanding. So last time we just gave a brief introduction of the New Testament and how it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so what I want to do today is talk about the historical setting of the New Testament. When Jesus was born, which essentially is the beginning of uh, this whole story, what was going on in the world and how did the nation of Israel get to the point that they were so that Jesus came at that time? Why did he come at that time? You know, all of these big questions. For us to answer it, we do need to go back a few hundred years before that. Uh, as I mentioned in the last session, there was about a usually regarded as about a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the, and the beginning of the New Testament. And so what we're going to do is cover that 400 years and actually overlap a little bit, probably go back about 500 years, just to get a picture of the whole uh, political, military, social, uh, religious situation at the time that Jesus was born. And again, not just what it was when he was born, but how it got there. And really what you'll see is this helps us understand a whole lot of what we read about in the New Testament. So we're going to go back a little over 500 years, and we're going to divide this, this, these 500 years into sections uh, based on who ruled that part of the world at the time. And we're going to start with the Persians. So you will remember in the Old Testament, uh, one of the, the last major episodes of the New Testament, the Old Testament, was uh, the Babylonians coming to Jerusalem, sacking Jerusalem, uh, taking many of the people captive back to Babylon. And so this was called the Babylonian exile when the, the Jews Many of them had to leave the country. Many of them were taken to Babylon. Babylon was, we would call it today, a Persian nation. And so this, this happened in about 539 BC, and the Persians ruled until 331 BC. So for about 200 years, the Persians, or the Medes, the, we call it the Medo-Persian Empire, was in charge. And so what we're talking about here was the Babylonian captivity and then the years that followed that. So, as I said, when the Babylonians came in, the Persians came in, many of the Jews were dispersed into many different nations around that part of the world, and actually some of them traveled even farther. This is called the Diaspora, where the Jews were dispersed uh, among different nations around the world. And this wasn't the first time it happened. We'll see it happened again as well. But why it's really important to our study is that Jerusalem was the center of their worship. Jerusalem, you'll remember, had the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant that was to contain the very presence of God. And so this was the center of their whole religious system, their whole religious life. Every year, as many of them as possible were to come to Jerusalem to worship. And so when Jerusalem was essentially destroyed and the temple was destroyed, it changed Judaism very, very significantly. And now all the Jews weren't all in one place, they were all over the place. And so they had to adapt, they had to learn to practice their faith in different ways because they couldn't all come together in Jerusalem anymore, of course. 
This led to the rise of the synagogue because there would be Jewish communities all over the world and what would happen is the Jewish, the, you know, the Jewish members of certain cities or villages would get together and they would learn to worship together and so they developed synagogues which essentially were just Jewish churches, gatherings, assemblies and not only did the synagogue arise but the rabbi, the concept of the rabbi teacher also arose at that time. If you look in the Old Testament, you don't see the synagogue, you don't see the rabbi. Thus, this developed in this uh, intertestinal period, as we talk about, uh, between the end of the Old and the beginning of the New Testament. And because they were all dispersed and there wasn't a centralized, uh, I won't say government, but essentially government of faith, there isn't a centralized authority, they developed more and more traditions in order to uphold what they considered the Word of God, the Talmud, the teaching of Moses, the law. They wanted to uphold the law more than anything else. And so because they were all dispersed and the communication wasn't as good as it used to be, they developed traditions on how to uphold the law. Now, you will recognize some of the kings that uh, reigned during this time. One was Darius, another was Cyrus. Uh, you'll read about those in Ezra and the book of Nehemiah and in other books as well. And there's another king named Artaxerxes who you'll read about in the book of Esther. And under uh, Darius and Cyrus and Artaxerxes as well, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild the temple, the city, the wall, so that they again would have a center for their faith. And you read all about this in Ezra, starting in Ezra, and then also Nehemiah carried it on as well. So the Persians ruled at this time for about 200 years, but then in 331 BC, something very significant happened at this part of the world, what we call Israel today. It was taken over by the Greek empire. And so we now enter the Greek period, or we call it the Hellenist, Hellenistic period. Hellenist, by the way, means Greek in Greek. So that's, if you hear people talking about Hellenism or uh, Hellenistic period, we're talking about Greek things. And so this started in 331 BC and it lasted till 164 BC, 180 years, 190 years. And this all happened under Alexander the Great, whom you've probably heard. Fabulous leader, fabulous military strategist, general, uh, very hard-nosed, brutal guy, but he, he was very effective at what he did, took over vast amounts of the known world at the time. Now some good things happened. Uh, generally there was a higher standard of living that the, the Greek uh, culture brought. Uh, better transportation, better communication, better schooling, uh, uh, better academics, many, many things, better medicine, many, many things that the Greek culture brought that were actually benefits. However, of course, it was still a military regime and so the Jews were bound under this military regime. In this time, <clears throat> Greek became the common language. Understandable, it's the Greek Empire. Uh, while Hebrew was still spoken among the, the Jews and the Hebrews, of course, Greek was also incorporated into daily life. And this actually is an important factor when it comes to our understanding the New Testament. Because around 200 years BC, somewhere around there, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. Now you might think, 
Who cares? What's a big deal? Well, here's the deal. That translation is called the Septuagint. Septuagint. It's called that because they say 70 scholars got together and uh, they came up with this translation. Interesting legends around that. Um, and so at the time it became the most common translation to be studied. So even the Jewish scholars would begin to study the Septuagint rather than studying the Hebrew Bible. And you understand when you translate from one language to another, you want to get it as accurate as possible, but there's always something a little bit different in the translation. And the reason this impacts us today is when the New Testament authors like Paul and Peter and even Jesus uh, quoted the Old Testament, very often they didn't quote the Hebrew Old Testament, they quoted the Septuagint. They quoted the Greek New Testament. Now, I don't know if you've ever been reading along in the New Testament and you see where someone quotes something from the Old Testament and you read it in the New Testament and then just out of interest you kind of flip back and look back in the Old Testament and see what it says and sometimes you find it's a little different. The wording is kind of different here than it is here. I don't understand. Is that a misquote? Is something wrong? Well, here's the deal. In your Bible today, the Old Testament is an English translation from the Hebrew Okay, whereas, and, and then obviously the New Testament is an English translation from the Greek. But back when it was written, rather than referencing the Hebrew Bible, they most often referenced a different version, the Septuagint, the Greek Bible. So that's why your translation of the Old Testament might be slightly different than some of the quotes in the New Testament. So if you've ever noticed that, that's one of the explanations for it. Now, Alexander the Great was followed by a number of kings and other rulers, and um, as, as time went on, as generations went on, the Jews found it harder and harder for them to practice their faith the way they, they knew they needed to. And this all came to a head under a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He is Antiochus IV. There were a series of Antiochuses. I guess. And Antiochus Epiphanes, in 175 BC, he and those with him desecrated the temple and they, the temple of God, they set up a, a statue of Zeus, one of their gods in the temple of God. Not only that, they sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. And if you know anything about the Jewish kosher laws, you would know they would never allow a pig anywhere near the temple. And so this was just total blasphemy to the Jews. And they had been feeling this oppression, let's face it, for hundreds of years. And while the Greeks, you know, at, at first they allowed them to practice their religion, but now this clamped down and it was essentially banned. And when this statue of Zeus was set up, this is referred to in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book of Daniel refers to this as the abomination of desolation. And Daniel, which was written before this, looked ahead and prophesied this happening. And then Jesus also mentioned it as well. And it's interesting, Jesus mentions it in the Gospel not only as something that happened, but something that's going to happen again. So sometimes some of the things that were prophesied in the Old Testament, or even the New Testament, they were fulfilled once, but they will also be fulfilled again. This is important to know. So, what happened here is the Jews rebelled. This was just too much for them. They couldn't take it. Like They were able to last for a few more years. But in 164 BC, they revolted. And they were led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. Perhaps 
you've heard of him. So this is the Maccabean Revolt. And so we now enter what we call the Maccabean period, or this can also be called the Hasmonean period because that refers to the family uh, of Judas Maccabeus as well. And this is where the Jews get their tradition of the Hanukkah. There's a, a particular tale of what happened at this time. Their desire, of course, was to get back to true worship. They wanted to be able to worship God the way the Old Testament told them to worship. And so by getting the Greeks <clears throat> out of Jerusalem, they were able to do just that. They were able to return to what they considered pure worship. But what happened over the next years, decades, and generations is so common to humanity is that it just drifted away from this true worship. Uh, after one generation, you know, Judas uh, was succeeded by his son and then uh, other people came after him, they drifted away from these Maccabean ideals of wanting to worship God in the true, pure sense, and they were a little bit more interested in military expansionism, a little bit more interested in political maneuvering and this kind of thing. And so this generated some opposition from the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders got together and they kind of pushed back and they formed a group. This group was called the Pharisees. Now, what do the Pharisees want to do? They wanted to get back to true religion. They wanted to get back to true, pure worship of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they saw that their government was kind of moving away from that. And so they pushed back and they started instituting these laws and uh, more traditions as to how they can live out the law more fully, more completely, more accurately. They wanted to uphold the Old Covenant more and more faithfully, and so more and more traditions got added. Now, other sects of Jewish leaders arose because some of these people founding the Pharisees starting to drift away from pure worship, and it started to get too traditional. Way more things were being added to it. And so there was another group that arose that wanted to get back to true worship. This group was called the Sadducees. And they wanted to get right back to the very core of what true worship was. They wanted to get back to the law of Moses that was given uh, in the first five books of the Bible in the Pentateuch, what the Jews called the Torah. The Sadducees wanted to get back to the Torah. And so they actually, I won't say completely neglected, but they did not consider the rest of the Old Testament nearly as important as the Torah because they wanted to get back to pure, like the real thing. They wanted to worship God in spirit and in truth, even as Jesus said. But since they really only focused on the Pentateuch, the first few verses of the Bible, excuse me, first five books of the Bible, their beliefs were a little bit different than those who believed in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, if you read through the Pentateuch, you'll find it doesn't focus a lot on the afterlife. It doesn't talk about resurrection. It doesn't talk about anything after that. It just talks about carrying on the law and the tradition that God had started through Abraham and then went through his sons and then through Moses, Joshua, and presumably through the rest of them. And because it didn't talk about the afterlife, because it didn't talk about life after death, it didn't talk about heaven, it didn't talk about the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't believe in that. They rejected the idea of the resurrection. Now, why is this important? Well, when you read Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees in the Gospels, 
you'll see they're always talking about the resurrection and Jesus talking to them and saying, you guys don't understand because you're missing the point. There is a resurrection. And the Sadducees would go, no, there's no resurrection. In fact, at one point when Paul was on trial, you read about this in the book of Acts, Paul was on trial. He saw things weren't going quite the way he wanted and so he knew there were Pharisees and Sadducees in the courtroom and so he just started talking about the resurrection and he knew exactly what would happen. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would start bickering and arguing with one another and that kind of ended that whole day in court. And so understanding the basis of this helps us get, why do the Sadducees not believe in the resurrection? Now you know and that can help. Um, now, this lasted, this is the Hasmonean period or the Maccabean period. This was the Jews ruling themselves. Now, they were surrounded by the Greek Empire and so they had some understanding with the Greek Empire, but it worked okay. But then something changed. As time went on, you will understand that the Roman Empire began to grow and grow and gain in power. The Roman Empire uh, took over the Greek Empire and in 63, BC, they took over Israel, this, this, again, the Middle East, that part of the Middle East called Palestine, Israel, many, many different names over the years. And the Romans came, and again, the Romans were a, a military dictatorship, a very brutal uh, uh, military dictatorship. They did allow the Jews some self-rule. They allowed them to practice their religion to a certain extent, but all under the, you know, the thumbs of the Roman rule. And so this mistrust between the Jews and the Romans is an undercurrent that you see all through the New Testament. You see it all through the Gospels, through all of the disciples, just the way they talk. You see it in the book of Acts, and then you can even see it in some of the letters. And it's certainly referred to even in the book of Revelation as well. This is because the Romans were, the Romans were a brutal, brutal dictatorship. But since they did allow the Jews at least some form of self-government, they allowed them to have a king. And so there were a series of Jewish kings. And the one that, one that you would probably recognize the most became, uh, became king in 37 BC, so about 37, 35 years before the New Testament started. His name was Herod. He was called Herod the Great. And he was very powerful, very rich, uh, and ruthless, very, very ruthless. That's one of the reasons he was able to last so long. One of the things that he did, starting around 20 BC, is he started to rebuild the temple, the one that had been destroyed by the Babylonians almost 500 years before this. It, it was partially rebuilt when the, the Jews and the Hebrews got back to Jerusalem, but it was never fully rebuilt. Herod rebuilt the temple. So when you read in the New Testament about the temple, that's the temple that you're reading about, the one that King Herod reconstructed. And so that's the, the second temple. Now, Jesus was probably born about 5 B.C., now, you might find that a strange thing because we tend to think of B.C. as meaning before Christ. So how could Christ be born five years before Christ? That doesn't make sense. Long story, which I can't get into, just has to do with calendars uh, that existed over the years and um, various errors that were made as one calendar shifted to another calendar. The way it works out now is that our current calendar, the way it looks back on history, wasn't exactly the way it looked back on history at the time, but we can say that Jesus was born probably four or five BC. Now, Herod, as I said earlier, was a brutal 
dictator. He was ruthless. He was actually a bit paranoid. He killed several of his sons because he feared his sons wanted to take his position. They wanted to overthrow him and become king. He killed his wife because he was afraid that she wanted to take over the rulership of the nation as well. So he had no trouble killing all sorts of people. So this is, again, something that helps us understand when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You remember the wise men came uh, from the east and talked to Herod, and then they gave him the slip as they went back to their country, and Herod realized he had been, um, he'd been tricked. But what he had learned is a king was born, and Herod, Herod could not stand the thought of another king. And so what did he do? He sent his soldiers to Bethlehem, where this king was born, and he killed all of the male child's ch children excuse me, under the age of two. Well, this is in keeping with Herod's character. He'd already killed many of his own children, many of his own family, to avoid being overthrown by another king. And so this is, again, that puts that picture, which we read about in Matthew chapter 2, in perspective. Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and he was succeeded by his son, also named Herod, but he was Herod Antipas. And he reigned for a long time, and so he is the Herod that we read about in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts as well. Now, in this culture, although it was the Roman Empire, we look at it and we call it the Greco-Roman culture simply because so much of the Greek culture was maintained, because it was a very high culture for its time, and it was absorbed into the Roman culture, and the two were kind of fused together. And in this culture, there were many different religions. If you've studied Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you know all the names of the gods. I mentioned Zeus earlier. Uh, all of the planets are named after the gods, Mars and Venus and Mercury. These are uh, Roman gods, but then there are also Greek gods as well. And it was a very, very important part of their culture. We'll talk about more of that a little bit later. At this time also philosophy was very important, and it was actually considered a religion, a little bit different than the way we look at philosophy today. It was considered uh, a bit more of a mystic thing than it is today. It wasn't just a cerebral thing, but it was a spiritual uh, activity as well, and so it was seen as a religion. And then another religion began to spring up around the time of the New Testament called Gnosticism, spelled with a G, Gnosticism. And it was another religion, sort of a secret knowledge religion. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge, and so that's the root word of Gnosticism. We just don't pronounce the G in English anymore. And so uh, this Greek mythology, the philosophy, these pagan, you know, pagan mythology, philosophy, and Gnosticism, these all show up in the New Testament. And Paul in particular is the one who deals with them. He certainly talks about pagan mythologies. He certainly talks about philosophy, particularly if you're reading uh, 1 Corinthians. He, he addresses it head on. He also talks about it quite a bit in Colossians. And he also talks about Gnosticism, except he doesn't call it Gnosticism because at the time it wasn't called Gnosticism because it was very young and developing at that time. The name was given to it a little bit later. Now, in this time, in this culture, in this society, there was a tremendous amount of economic pressure on the Jewish people. There was, first of all, the Jewish triple tithe. So they had to give their first 10% to the Levites, and they had to give 10% to the temple, and they had to give three and a third percent to the poor. This was required of them. So 23 plus percent right off the top. On top of this, 
the Romans imposed their own taxes, which were significant. They had customs, they had tributes, they had all sorts of things where they just collected money from the Jews. And who collected the money? Well, of course, the tax collectors. And the tax collectors often were Jews hired by the Roman government to collect taxes, and it was well known that these tax collectors gathered more than they needed and they padded their own pockets with it. And so these tax collectors were enemies of the Jews, even though they were Jews. This is important to understand. First of all, we'll find out Matthew was one of those guys. But we also find when Jesus and the other disciples talk about tax collectors, they're not just talking about a group of economic people who have a certain job. They're talking about sinners. They're talking about reprobates. They use that term in a very derogatory way. This is why because they were hired by the Romans to collect all of these taxes. So all of this led the Jews to hate the Romans. They had been under tyranny after tyranny after tyranny. They had been under bondage, forms of bondage for 500 years. And they, were, they knew they had been called by God to be his chosen people, and yet here they were under the bondage and thumb of, at this point, the Romans. And they hated it. They were oppressed. They could no longer really freely practice their faith, their religion, as it was prescribed in the Old Testament. And they wanted nothing more than to shake off this tyranny, shake off this bondage that they had suffered for generation after generation. They wanted to create the nation of Israel again. They wanted to have a free nation of Israel. And so the people were looking for a savior. Absolutely, they were looking for a savior. Even from the religious perspective, they were looking for a Messiah because a Messiah was promised in the Old Testament. But now they were fusing these two things together. They were looking for a, a Messiah, not all of them, but most of them were looking for a Messiah who was gonna be a political leader, who was gonna be a military leader that was going to somehow get rid of the Romans, overthrow the Romans, and set up a new Jewish kingdom. This is the situation that Jesus was born into back around 4 or 5 BC. So a very complex culture, very complex society, very complex religious system that he was born into. And so understanding some of this context helps us understand why people did the things that they did that we read about in the New Testament, why they say the things they say and the attitudes that they have. Hopefully this helps us to appreciate and to read the New Testament more accurately and understand the history of it. So thanks for listening to this. Again, you can download the notes if you want a, uh, a reminder of these various things that led up to the societal and the military and the political situation and the religious situation that Jesus was born into. You can download those and I encourage you to join us for the third session in this overview of the New Testament. Thanks very much.